Welcome to the latest episode of Big Screen Batman, presented through Bureau42.com. I'm your host, Blaine Dowler. This month we're going to pedal a bit back in time and take a look at Batman Mask of the Phantasm. Mask of the Phantasm was originally released on Christmas Day 1993, so it came out after Batman Returns and before Batman Forever. And it was kind of an accidental project. Warner Brothers didn't really see it coming and it seems like they didn't quite know what to do with it. We've already discussed how the Tim Burton films were financially successful in terms of box office criteria, but they didn't quite take off in the toy market and in the merchandising the way that the studios had hoped. And they wanted to respond to that and try to find a way to do that. And this ultimately ends up with a story that may be the only time in human history that smoking has actually had a positive impact on the planet. So in Warner Brothers, they decided if we release a Batman-themed cartoon, we can ride on the coattails of the movie and how exciting Batman is and how popular he is at the moment and just cash in on the Batmania and still have a vessel that is just perfectly designed for delivering toys and for getting people excited about that toy market. So that's the way that they decided to approach it. And then they had to figure out, okay, if we're making this cartoon, who's going to be doing it and how? Well, there were actually a couple of smokers, probably more than two. But there were two in particular that used to sort of hang out in the same part of the building to go outside and take a smoke break. One of them was one of the executives who was deciding who's going to make this cartoon and how. Another one was an in-betweener by the name of Bruce Tim. Now, for those not familiar with animation, you may not know what an in-betweener is. There are hundreds and hundreds, if not thousands, of frames of every animated character needed for a cartoon. At 24 frames per second, you get to 100 frames if a character appears on the screen for more than 4 seconds. You get to 1,000 frames if that character appears on screen for more than 40 seconds. You can see how quickly these frames add up. So for any given character, you typically have a lead animator in your traditionally animated films. So this is someone who takes point and does a lot of the character designs and figures out how the character gets from A to B and what they look like along the way in their major motions. So this lead animator might animate frames 1, 5, 13, and 20 in a particular animation. But they don't have time to animate every single frame of the movie, which is why when you read credits in animated movies, there's usually a long, long list of in-betweeners. These in-betweeners are the grunt work of animation. We wouldn't have animation without the in-betweeners, but it's still pretty much a thankless job. So these few frames that the lead animator produces are handed to an in-betweener, and that in-betweener fills in the gaps according to the lead animator's notes and directions, and does their best to reproduce the lead animator's style and the lead animator's ideas. So there's very little room for personal expression. It's all about, can't you do what the lead animator is currently unable to do because of the workload? But this guy, this Bruce Tim, was a huge comic book fan, and he knew Batman very, very well. And he actually had a bit of a relationship, personal friendship, with the DC exec, and the Warner Brothers exec, sorry, who he would hang out with at these smoking doors when they were outside smoking. And when the producer would talk about it, Bruce Tim would share his ideas and talk about how he would do the cartoon, and what he would want to see in this cartoon as a Batman fan. And he was so excited and so passionate and so knowledgeable, and right there working in the animation department, that the exec basically hired him to make the cartoon. Which is good news for all of us, because the Bruce Tim animated DC series are just phenomenal. He ran that department in Warner Brothers and ran it very, very well for a good 20 years. He was in charge of 
the DC comic books animated adaptations, both the direct-to-video and the animated TV series, and he did it extremely well. One of the projects that he did was Batman the Animated Series, which premiered in 1992. And as part of the way to branch out and have more things on the market, they went with a direct-to-video release based on a story by Alan Burnett. There were actually four writers who would take Alan Burnett's story and turn it into a screenplay. One of them was Alan Burnett, another was Paul Dini, another was former DC Comics writer Martin Pascal, or Marty Pascal. If you have the time, or preferably make the time, track down Martin Pascal's episodes on Word Balloon and Fat Man on Batman. They are fantastic. And Michael Reeves was the fourth screenwriter. So they basically chopped this script up into four pieces, and they all took Alan Burnett's outline and scripted from that. This was then passed over to Bruce Timm and Eric Radomski as the directors of this piece. What they put together was intended to be a direct-to-video release, using the same cast as the animated series. When they handed it to Warner Brothers, Warner looked at what they had and figured, this is really, really good. This is a lot better than it needs to be for a direct-to-video release. They decided that they were going to show it enough faith to release it in theaters. So they scheduled for release on December 25th, 1993. So this was a Christmas Day release. It is the first Batman story to hit the big screen and really tell his origin in depth. So remember, we get hints of that in Batman Forever, hints of it in the original Batman. Batman Forever tells more. It talks about the vow. This came before that. A lot of people will criticize movies for having too many characters and too many action sequences and not enough plot and not enough story. This movie has a number of primary characters. There are 11 characters that have significant impact on the plot. We get the most complete origin of Batman to date, not just including why he became a crime fighter, but how some of his training went, why he put on the Bat mask, why he chose a symbol at all, let alone that symbol. That's all here. We get an origin and completely fleshed out story for a villain. We get one of Bruce Wayne's early love interests. We get a number of mobsters that are involved in this vengeance plot. We get some pretty good character work with Alfred, even though he's barely on screen. We get some very nice moments for Commissioner Gordon, better than we had in any of the live-action films up to this time, including the 1966 film. We get some nice work with Harvey Bullock, where we get an idea of who his character is and what he's about before he even speaks, and we get the Joker. We get all of this in 77 minutes. So the direct-to-video timelines haven't really changed. They're still fairly restrictive, but it works very well. The cast that we have involved is also very strong. So Kevin Conroy as Batman and Bruce Wayne. To many of us, when we're reading Batman comics, we hear Kevin Conroy's voice. He is still my favorite performer when it comes to Batman. Andrea Beaumont is Dana Delaney. Hart Bachner, who we discussed last year, he was the guy in Die Hard, the sleazebag, with the cocaine habit, as well as the love interest in Supergirl. He's the voice of Arthur Reeves. Stacy Keach, whom a lot of us know as Mike Hammer, is also in here as Carl Beaumont, Andrea's father, and in a modulated version of his voice, he is the voice of the Phantasm. Abe Vigoda, who a lot of people will know as Fish from Barney Miller, is mobster Salvador Valestra. Dick Miller is Chucky Saul. Now, Dick Miller is probably known for his works in movies such as The Terminator, Gremlins, Small Soldiers. He's also in General Hospital, Route 666, NYPD Blue, Clueless, ER. He was in a couple episodes of Star Trek Deep Space Nine. He was in Lois and Clark, New Adventures of Superman. He was in The Flash as Foss Knight for six episodes of that live-action version. 
He was Murray Futterman in Gremlins 2 The New Batch as well as the original. He was a vendor in Star Trek Next Generation episode The Big Goodbye. So he's got a very respectable career. The next one up is John P. Ryan as Buzz Bronski. We're talking about a guy who was in Bound, Runaway Train, It's Alive, Rent-A-Cop. He's got a pretty long list of credits, but those are the most prominent of the 73 to his name. Then we go into some of the regulars on this cast. We've got Ephraim Zimbalist Jr., the concert pianist, father of Stephanie Zimbalist, of Remington Steel fame. He, as always, is Alfred Pennyworth. Now, Bob Hastings is known to a lot of people out there. He is Commissioner Gordon. He's got a very long list of credits to his name, including McHale's Navy, also General Hospital, Static Shock, Gotham Girls, a lot of voice work later in his career. He also had a few guest spots on The Dukes of Hazard, a few guest spots on The Greatest American Hero, on The Incredible Hulk, on Wonder Woman, on Challenge of the Super Friends, doing voice acting back then, Quincy M.E., Operation Petticoat, Police Story, Clue Club, all in the family as Tommy Kelsey for 12 episodes, Ironside as a number of different characters, Adam 12, Genie, so certainly a respectable career for him. Robert Costanza is the voice of Detective Harvey Bullock. So he's best known for the original Total Recall, for Saturday Night Fever, for Die Hard 2, Days of Our Lives. He was Phil in Kingdom Hearts and in Hercules. He's in The Family Guy, NCIS, CSI New York, Will and Grace, Fairly Odd Parents. Again, a very lengthy career. 266 acting credits in total. So even if you don't know him by name, you will know him on site. But quite possibly the big voice acting star and the best-known actor to some generations, as the Joker, is Mark Hamill. For me, the best Joker is a toss-up between Mark Hamill and someone we're going to be discussing later this year. But I will take Mark Hamill over Jack Nicholson, over Cesar Romero, over anyone else who betrayed him to date. Mark Hamill doesn't sound like Mark Hamill when he's doing the Joker. He just nails this part. We've got Arlene Sorkin doing a fairly small role as just one of these debutantes at a party, She is better known to people as the voice of Harley Quinn. Now, in terms of the other production staff, we've got Shirley Walker doing the music for this film. We've got Al Breitenbach doing the editing, and Al has a huge list of credits in the editing departments of a lot of Warner Brothers cartoons. So we've got some very talented people backing it up, and the voice actors that are coming in were cast by Andrea Romano, who is a legend as far as animation is concerned. If you've been watching cartoons since the late 80s or early 90s, there is no question that you have seen something where she did voice acting or possibly voice directing with. She is excellent in that kind of role. So we've got a team who put this together. We've got a studio who decided kind of last minute this is going to be released in theaters on Christmas Day. Now, this was before my time in a theater, but I can tell you from that time, a Christmas Day release tends to send a couple of signals out. On Christmas Day, a lot of people would assume theaters are going to be empty. They're actually quite busy because there are a number of families who will go see a movie together as their annual Christmas tradition, which means family-oriented films tend to do pretty well. But the movies that get released on Christmas Day or later generally fall into two categories. One group of them are movies that have some shot at the Oscars. They get released sometimes in limited release just for Christmas in order to qualify for that year's Oscar group, so they're still fresh in the minds of the voters when the ballots go out at the end of the year. The other group are the family films that may or may not do well the rest of the year. Some of them are because they are explicitly Christmas-themed and are just not expected to age well. People don't necessarily want to go see a Christmas movie around Valentine's Day, for example. 
some of them are there just because they're not really expected to be good and they figure, well, let's do it when all the families are out there anyway. And they're going, well, what do we have for family fare? So that's something that a lot of people would assume Mask of the Phantasm would be. They were coming in expecting cheap family fare that wasn't necessarily any good. Now, unfortunately, it didn't have a lot of advertising backup either. There weren't really any TV spots that aired with it, partly because the animated series was sold into syndication, which meant that Warner Brothers had little or no control over what commercials were airing during the shows. So they couldn't really pair it in there to hit the best possible audience and let them know this movie's coming. Now, when they released it in theaters, those who watch theatrical trailers and pay attention to them know that there tends to be a pattern. First, you get a teaser out that just gives you a hint of what's coming, usually just under a minute, sometimes no more than 15 or 20 seconds. That's released early. And then as you approach the release of the movie, you need to release newer trailers, typically longer trailers. Because if you're just using the same teaser, it's not as exciting anymore because people have seen it quite a lot. Or at least that's the impression and the understanding that they work under. You want something new and fresh to advertise with. And one way to make sure that trailers get out in front of audiences is for studios to pair them with other releases. So often a movie will come in with a series of trailers already attached, and the exhibitors are told, these are the trailers you're going to show. Now the exhibitors have the freedom to add other trailers beforehand, but they're contractually obligated to run the trailers that come with it, which is why sometimes when you're in theaters, you see movies being advertised that have nothing in common with the movie you're seeing, aside from being produced from the same studio. And they're just going for that visibility and trying to get that out there. As I said, typically with multiple trailers. Mask of the Phantasm didn't get multiple trailers. It got a single trailer just under a minute that was released and available to theaters, but it wasn't mandated to be part of any film. Now, some of these movies, when they've got mandated trailers, they get kind of long, and theaters are reluctant to put other ones on there. For example, they've recently announced that Batman v Superman Dawn of Justice is being moved up till March of 2016, about six weeks ahead of Captain America 3, which it was formerly simultaneously scheduled with. I'm expecting that to come with a large number of mandated Warner Brothers trailers just to make the trailer sections so long that exhibitors are reluctant to advertise Captain America 3 on that film just because it would drag out the trailers too long, even though it's a perfect film to advertise it on, right? You're looking at the superhero crowd. Well, there you go. Here's your superhero crowd coming for a superhero movie. Without that forced connection, there's no guarantee that people are going to be seeing this Mask of the Phantasm trailer, to the point that Siskel and Ebert didn't even review it when it came out for the theatrical release. They looked at the amount of advertising and marketing backing it was getting from Warner Brothers. They looked at the Christmas date release. They figured it was animated based on a TV series they weren't particularly familiar with and just didn't bother because they didn't think it would be any good. I remember that distinctly because I was watching Siskel and Ebert when this came out on home video. And when it came out on home video, they came out and apologized because somebody from Warner Brothers hadn't just sent the video like they normally do. Someone from Warner's hand delivered a copy and said, please just watch it. And Siskel and Ebert got out and apologized to the viewers and to the makers of this film for neglecting it the first time. Because as far as they were concerned, this was the best theatrical release of a Batman story to date. As I've already said, it packs a lot in it. Right? We get the origin of Batman pretty much in totality we get a fully fleshed out villain. We get Batman's love interest. We get a mystery. And one of the key things that I really like about this movie, this was the first time that Batman really came across as a detective. He's collecting evidence from crime scenes. He's analyzing chemical traces. He is going through the steps that an actual detective would do. He's following the evidence, following the leads, 
and putting together the true identity of this phantasm who's out there killing mobsters. And that's another thing going for this film. The villain is the phantasm. They didn't bring in someone from the comics and adapt it and try to work them in. They're actually using a completely new villain, which means even the most devoted fans don't have any shorthand. You can't just say, that's the Joker and run with it, because part of your audience automatically knows who the Joker is. They have to establish this character from the outset, and that's part of what builds the mystery. We get some dialogue that actually pretty closely links and ties it all together. We get a moment after one of Bruce's first vigilante trips, and he realizes that the guys he was trying to stop didn't react. He came down in just black clothes and ski mask, told them to put their guns down, and they laughed at him and started the fight. Afterwards, he came back to Alfred and said, there's only one problem. They weren't afraid of me. I need to strike fear into them from the start. So that's the first hint where he's going to start using symbolism and become the Batman. We get animation quality so that young Bruce actually looks young. They weren't just removing aging lines from his face or changing hairstyles. His facial structure has actually changed a bit as it typically does between someone's early 20s and their mid-30s. We get a moment of doubt where Bruce is falling in love and he goes back to his parents' grave and he's crying and asking their permission to not continue to be Batman. To say, I know I made a promise, but I didn't see this coming. I didn't count on being happy. We get one of the better pieces of music that was actually solicited just for the film to go over the closing credits. It, in my opinion, is a lot better than a lot of the techno stuff. It's actually related thematically and lyrically to what's going on in the movie. It's not just, you know, hold me, kiss me, kill me, thrill me. You know, there's not that there's anything wrong with that song, but it doesn't in any way connect with the content of that film. In this one, it does, in a closing song that's actually performed by Tia Carrere, who most of us know as either the female love interest in Wayne's World or as the Relic Hunter. So when Siskel and Ebert said this was their favorite Batman to date, I would agree this was easily the best Batman film, right up at least until the end of the 90s. We'll talk about how everything stacks up. I'm going to go through our future movies, including Catwoman next month and the Christopher Nolan trilogy during October, November, and December of this year. But that's not all we go through. As you no doubt recall, we like to go through what impact this had on the comics and the source material. Well, the villain of the Phantasm actually starts to show up in the comics after this, as does Harley Quinn and a few other characters and changes that came out of the animated series, including the origin of Mr. Freeze that was used in Batman and Robin. Now, how did this do financially? So if Siskel and Ebert missed it, maybe others missed it too. Sadly, they did. The production budget is an estimated $6 million, making it probably the cheapest Batman to date. The total domestic gross was $5,617,391. So this was not profitable as a theatrical release, although it has become profitable since then through the strength of the home video releases and the home video sales. It is available on DVD, usually fairly cheaply with almost no special features, because the box office wasn't high enough that they felt it was worth investing in. If you haven't picked this up, I strongly recommend you do so. So it certainly didn't get that two to three times its budget return to be profitable in the theaters. In terms of how the gross stands up in relation to other Batman films, well, BoxOfficeMojo.com only tracks eight of the Batman films. It doesn't count the serials. It doesn't count Catwoman as a Batman film, nor does it have the numbers for the 1966 film. So it really only covers from the 1989 Batman till now. This is the lowest grossing film of the bunch, by about $101 million. Batman and Robin is in 7th place out of 8, with $107 million. This is 8th place at just under 6. So, it didn't do all that well. Even if we look at it in terms of DC Comics in general, so that's everything that Box Office Mojo tracks. 
not just the Batman movies, Watchmen, Green Lantern, the Superman movies that we've already discussed, Constantine V for Vendetta, Catwoman, The Losers, Jonah Hex, Steel, all of these. There's 25 films on that list. Mask of the Phantasm comes in at number 24. The only movie that has a lower box office gross than this does is Steel, with Shaquille O'Neal in a movie where DC looked at it and then paid extra to have the special effects remove the Superman shield from the suit because they wanted to put some distance between themselves and the movie based on their property. That one grossed a little under $2 million. Adjusting for inflation, it does a little bit better. It actually comes up from the $5.6 million mark to the $11 million mark, which pulls it ahead of Jonah Hex. So now it makes it up to 23 out of 25. So still not really a financial success in any great strength in theaters, but it did quite well on home video, which is probably why DC Animation has shifted to so many direct-to-video releases. So I'm not going to do a lot in terms of plot summary, partly because this is a mystery, and it's a mystery movie that not enough people have watched. So I'm going to leave a lot of the details out to leave it open for listeners who haven't seen it yet to track it down and still be surprised. But this is a movie that is quite easy to recommend. It's had some influence on the comics. It was more influenced by the Denny O'Neill and Neil Adams run, a little bit by Frank Miller, including some direct homages to Frank Miller's Dark Knight Returns in terms of the nature and location of the final showdown. So it is definitely worth picking up. And as I said, I wanted to do it out of order because I needed a palate cleanser between Batman and Robin and Catwoman. So join us again next month when I rewatch Catwoman multiple times, including all the bonus features, to do the next month's podcast. That one I will do a more detailed plot recap because if you don't already own a copy, don't pay for it. It's not going to be good. As always, feedback can be sent to Bureau42Podcasts at gmail.com, and you can check out this and our other podcasts at Bureau42.com or on iTunes or Stitcher, where reviews are also welcome, as they definitely help with the visibility of the podcast. And until the 14th of next month, thank you for listening.